Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Every Square Inch, where we engage every inch of God's world through the lens of God's worldview. Uh, This is going to be the final episode of my series on race in America, and let me briefly review how I have come at this. In part one, I spoke to those embracing this moment with a word of admonition to follow Jesus, not critical theory or intersectionality into this moment. In part two, I spoke to those skeptical of this moment with a word of admonition to actually follow Jesus into this moment because this moment is real and the justice of Jesus cares about this moment. But I am determined to not just critique both sides of the divide without offering a compelling way forward that unites the two. And that's what this episode is for. So, okay, both sides, I hope, are ready to follow Jesus. What does it look like to do so? First and foremost, that answer must begin with contrition. Perhaps in my last episode where I outlined the history of systemic racism in America, you were wondering, where was the church in all of this? Well, sadly, the church was complicit in all of this. More specifically, the evangelical church uh, was complicit. And so before we look forward proactively, it is crucial that we look back penitently. Biblically speaking, repentance always begins with confession. Before we can talk change, we have to demonstrate contrition. And so let me begin by giving the black community harmed by Christians a long overdue, much-deserved confession and apology. And when I say our confession, uh, when I say confession, again, I have in mind my tradition. I, I keep coming back to this, but it's important to me that this discussion be personalized. It's one thing to confess how Christianity has failed, but it's another thing to confess how my particular tradition within Christianity has failed. Now, granted, that's more difficult, but when confession is personalized, it is far more healing. So I am going to offer a way forward, but first, let's go back. I'm going to start with the First Great Awakening, America's First Great Awakening, which in many ways was the origin of my tradition. Truly, my historically speaking, my tradition goes back to John Knox, John Calvin, but my American Christian tradition is the First Great Awakening. America's 18th century spiritual awakening brought with it much good, but two notable flaws that still plague the evangelical tradition it produced. First, the Christian faith became oriented disproportionately vertical, meaning the gospel was truncated into something that merely addressed the need for reconciliation between individuals and God. We are sinners. God is holy. Only through faith in Jesus Christ can we be reconciled to God. This was the theme of the Great Awakening. Therefore, the predominant application of the Great Awakening was personal conversion and personal piety. Now, I, as an evangelical, obviously agree with this, but I also recognize it is a deficient vision of the gospel's breadth. Christianity became a vertical religion at the exclusion of the horizontal. And so what was lost were the social implications of the gospel. That Jesus did not just come to save souls, but to make the world right. So listen to these words he used to commence his ministry on earth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now, talk like that would get you labeled a Marxist in our day. But he said it because that's what he came to do, to undo what sin has done to his creation. Now, of course, that involves reconciling sinners to God. But reconciled sinners now become his agents of reconciliation in the world. And it was that second half of the mission that was missing in the Great Awakening and still is in many evangelical circles. The evangelical faith is notorious for replacing the great command, love God and love neighbor, with the great commission in primacy. Now, I would argue the Great Commission is completely missed if viewed exclusively through the lens of evangelism and revivals because Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, meaning inaugurating them into my church, which is my social institution on earth, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I commanded. And Jesus summed up all that he commanded with love God, love neighbor. So the Great Commission is much more than a commission to get people to heaven. It is a commission to bring heaven to earth. Now, it's not that the awakening was completely void of social implications. One could argue the entire American Revolution was born out of revival pulpits. And the church absolutely was concerned with the poor, widowed, and orphaned. So how do they miss it on slavery? Well, that brings us to the second significant flaw of the Great Awakening. It was blind to social injustices embedded within the colonization culture it inherited. Christianity was too aligned with white European supremacy, such that the Christian social ethic uncritically adopted the white European ethic. And what all this led to were pious Christians blinded to certain social evils that were acceptable and normative in that day, most notably, of course, human trafficking. So, for example, George Whitfield was the evangelist of the awakening. Early on, he was critical, not so much of slavery, but of the way um, masters treated their slaves. And he preached to slaves. Many slaves were converted under his preaching. However, the older he got, the more he assimilated into Southern slave culture. And to his shame, he willingly received a South Carolina plantation along with its slaves as a gift from wealthy plantation owners who were supporters of his ministry. In addition, he eventually became convinced he needed slaves for his own Georgia plantation, justifying it by saying that the wealth generated by the plantation went to support charitable causes such as his orphanage. Now, if George Whitfield was the evangelist of the awakening, Jonathan Edwards was the theologian, often referred to as the greatest reformed theologian America has ever produced, who also happened to own slaves. And one example of disgustful irony, um, Edwards had a habit of writing sermon notes on scrap paper. And one sermon he preached entitled, The Great End in God's Appointing Gospel Ministry. This was written on the back of a receipt, proving his purchase of a 14-year-old female slave. So summing it up, the Great Awakening, for all its greatness, had two major flaws. A neglect of the social implications of the gospel and an uncritical alignment with white European culture. And one could easily argue those two same flaws haunt the evangelical tradition to this very day. But for the purpose of my audience, let's move from evangelicalism in general to Presbyterianism in particular. 
And let me give um, let me give intellectual credit here, which will also point you to some resources if you want to go deeper into this history. Uh, for more popular read, Heal Us Emanuel has some good essays in it, including a well-footnoted and researched history of Southern Presbyterian in the PCA by Bobby Griffith. Sean Lucas has written a more thorough book on the history of Southern Presbyterianism called For a Continuing Church. And for a more scholarly outside perspective, Carolyn DuPont's Mississippi Praying is an excellent analysis of evangelicalism's resistance to the civil rights movement. But, but here's what you need to know. In the same way our country divided over abolition, so did evangelical denominations. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians all had major splits during the 19th century. And then after the war, there was more division in the South between churches who wanted wanted to follow the progress of northern churches integrating and those that wanted to hold fast to southern evangelical heritage. And so the civil rights divide in our country was reflected in our churches as well, particularly in the South. Many evangelical conservatives conflated white Southern heritage with theological fidelity, meaning to be orthodox was to be a good Southern Confederate. For example, Southern Presbyterians venerated Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis as saints and martyrs of the Christian faith. And the go-to theologian who merged the Reformed faith with Confederate values was uh, Robert Louis Dabney. Dabney served as a chaplain in the Civil War and after the war became a prominent theologian for Southern evangelicals. To this day, his systematic theology book is esteemed in some Reformed circles. However, Dabney never changed his views on slavery and segregation. He was a racist. No other way to put it. He articulated the tenets of the Reformed faith with precision and persuasion, but also articulated the vision of the Confederacy with similar skill. This was made abundantly clear in a speech he gave at the Presbyterian General Assembly entitled Ecclesiastical Relation of Negroes Against the Ecclesiastical Equality of Negro Preachers in Our Church and Their Right to Rule Over White Christians. You can read that for yourself, but yeah, it's it's as repugnant as the title implies. And so this was the culture of Southern Presbyterianism going into the Jim Crow era, which is why the Jim Crow era was supported and reinforced by evangelical Protestants. KKK membership was filled with evangelical Christians and protected by evangelical churches. In fact, Evangelicalism gave the KKK a theological ground to stand on in their ambitions by twisting passages of Scripture to support segregation and discrimination. And so the civil rights movement in general, and uh, really Brown versus Board of Education in particular, led to a fierce theological divide among Southern evangelicals. Now, to be historically fair here, it would be wrong to claim that the growing divide was exclusively around the issue of integration. Uh, There were concerns about progressive theological and social convictions outside of race. And so a dissenting group of conservatives emerged to voice their concerns in journals such as the Presbyterian Journal. The Presbyterian Journal detailed many critiques regarding the trajectory of Southern Presbyterianism but this absolutely did include integration. Uh, The journal argued for segregation, against interracial marriage, and even formally endorsed the KKK. 
Eventually, this divide became unsustainable, and the dissenting conservatives split with the Southern Presbyterian Church to form a new denomination in 1973, which would become the Presbyterian Church in America, of which Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church is a member. Now, no doubt the PCA has dramatically evolved over its 50-year history. And the vast majority of its membership know nothing of the history I just shared and would repudiate these founding views. But friends, the PCA is only 50 years. As far as Christian denominations go, we are in the infancy stage. So for perspective here, one of the leading voices in the formation of the PCA was Dr. Morton Smith. Morton Smith served as the PCA's first stated clerk and remained in that role until 1988. Taste Creek Presbyterian Church was founded in 1984, while Morton Smith was still the clerk of the denomination. Why am I saying this? Because Morton Smith subscribed and advocated a theology of segregation. If you want to go down the disturbing rabbit hole, you can uh, Google Kenism to get the essence of this perspective. And if you want to read from Morton Smith himself, you can access his thoughts by reading his essay, The Racial Problem Facing America. Read that, and then realize that this man was, in many ways, the face of the PCA when TCPC came into existence. If that doesn't hit home, I don't know what will. And so how can we possibly move forward without first acknowledging the failures of our past? And by our past, I mean my past. Were I a Baptist pastor, I would be telling a different story. Were I a Methodist pastor, I'd be telling a different story, but I'm not. I'm an ordained minister in the PCA, and so that is the story I need to tell. So I'm acknowledging it. For whatever it's worth, I'm owning it, and I want to apologize for it. I'm sorry. To the Southern black population in particular, I am sorry for the shameful history I just detailed. And I also recognize that apologies are easy, but change is arduous. But it is the more difficult labor of change that authenticates apologies. So let me add to my confession and contrition what I hope is a thoughtful way forward of repentance. The PCA took a major step at its 44th General Assembly by adopting an overture that repudiated our racist past and called for corporate and individual repentance within the denomination. It's an overture I personally voted for, And I actually believe it's a fantastic statement that doesn't get enough attention, quite frankly. I'll include a link to it um, in the description of this podcast. But in my observation, since that General Assembly, overtures don't go far unless there is a robust plan moving forward. I am certainly not qualified or called to do that for the denomination. But my responsibility is my congregation. So let me do my best to conclude this whole series on race with what I hope is a compelling way forward for TCPC and all of those listening in who want to join us. And I want to do that from both a theological and practical perspective, because this moment demands both. So before we get to practical applications, let's build a theological framework to guide us. First, I I want to just build the case that yes, justice for the oppressed is a central theme of Scripture. There are many places I could go. But I think Isaiah is probably the best. Isaiah was a a fiery prophet calling Israel to repentance. And a theme that runs through Isaiah is a religious people neglecting the cause of justice. So in his first chapter, he goes straight into his rebuke, and it's this. You're very religious. 
You keep all the ceremonies, you pray, you worship, you observe the Sabbath, but you are a burden to God. Quite literally, God is getting tired of you, says the prophet Isaiah. Why? Because it's empty religion. And Isaiah, on behalf of God, says, enough of your religion. Instead, quote, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God says to his people, enough with all your ceremonies, correct oppression. Isaiah 58 is a famous chapter that repeats the same theme in a little more detail. The Lord says to Israel, I see what you're doing. Uh, You're devoted to worship. You're devoted to my commandments, to prayer, to fasting. Now, Now, by the way, just stop there. Isn't that what we imagine when we imagine mature and pious Christianity? A worshiping people committed to holiness, committed to scripture, committed to prayer, committed to fasting, and yet God sees them as immature and ungodly. Why? This is what he says. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Do you see how central justice for the oppressed and needy is to our ethic? And we see this everywhere in the wisdom literature as well. I'll give you just one example. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up, judge fairly, defend the rights of the needy. People think biblical justice means all are equal, and this is true. This is a revolutionary concept born out of the Christian worldview. All are equal. But a more nuanced view of biblical justice that we see here and elsewhere is that because all are equal, justice demands that the powerful have a special regard for the powerless. Now, do you see what I mean when I said the Bible is more than sufficient to arrive at the conclusions critical theory seeks to find? It says because all are equal, the Bible views justice as a special concern for the powerless who are not being treated as equals. That's not Karl Marx. That's Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Let's turn to the New Testament. There's a well-known passage in James that says, Faith without works is dead faith. You've probably heard that verse before. Now, we typically think of that verse, we think of works that validate our faith through the lens of personal piety. I'm putting to death my sins. I'm doing Christian practices, attending church, reading my Bible, prayer, and so forth. These are the works that we think prove our faith as authentic. But when you actually read the verse in context, you will realize that James is pulling an Isaiah on the Christian church. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Do you see? The action of faith that James speaks of is justice for the needy. And then things get really, really serious when we turn to Jesus himself. Obviously, we see in Jesus, in his life, the embodiment of justice for the oppressed. 
But when Jesus speaks of Judgment Day, this issue gets personal for every single one of us. In Matthew 25, we are given a picture of the judgment seat of Jesus. And Jesus says that he will separate the masses like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And what is the dividing line of his judgment? Our justice. Those welcomed into the kingdom are those who fed the hungry, sheltered the stranger, clothed the naked, cared for the sick, visited the imprisoned, and so forth. Those departed into condemnation are those who refused the hungry, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the oppressed, and so forth. So how central is justice to biblical ethics? Eternally central. We are saved by grace through faith, but faith without works is dead. So in judgment, King Jesus doesn't ask, do you have faith in me? He looks at your life to see your faith in action. Why? Why is justice for the oppressed so central to our ethic? Because our God identifies himself with the oppressed. Conventionally speaking, religions identify their gods with power. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob flips that paradigm and identifies with the powerless. Thus, Jesus concludes his judgment teaching by saying, whatever you do to the least, you do to me. Not whatever you do to the king, you do to me. Whatever you do to the least, you do to me. Okay, so we're seeking a biblical framework to move forward. And what I hope I have demonstrated is the centrality of justice to that framework. Now, now let's move toward the way justice is enacted. Justice is the expectation of those who follow Jesus. But how does Jesus call us to do justice? I think that question is what so many Christians are stumbling over themselves with right now. I know I'm supposed to do justice. This moment has awakened me. How? What am I supposed to do? To arrive at that answer, I want to first let Jesus critique the predominant paradigm of our culture. Because we have become so polarized, if you ask followers of Jesus how to correct oppression in our land, typically you would get DNC or GOP talking points. We cannot imagine cultural change outside that crippling binary that we've created, and it's killing our cause of justice. There was a point in Jesus' ministry when he was confronted with the political divide of his day, and it's fascinating how he handled it. In Mark 12, we read that they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. Now, what's interesting about that is that the Pharisees and Herodians were bitter enemies, politically speaking. The Pharisees were, I suppose, the conservatives of that day. The Herodians were the progressives of that day, at least as it pertained to their relationship with the Roman state. And the political enemies have come together against Jesus, which means that Jesus hasn't been following either of their strategies and was actually a threat to both. And they come together to ask him his opinion on the political issue of the day. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The reason why that was so controversial is that the Jews were living as an oppressed people under the authority of Caesar, and Rome's heavy taxation uh, was a constant reminder of this. However, there was one tax in particular that was very controversial. Rome had a tax called the head tax, which was something everyone had to pay just for the privilege of living under the authority of Caesar. It was only one denarius, which would be equal to something like a quarter 
in our day. So it wasn't the amount that infuriated them. It was what the tax represented that made them so angry because it was a reminder of their oppression. It wasn't a mistake that the head tax was one denarius because on a denarius was a picture of Caesar and the words, Caesar, the son of God, the great high priest. And so the two sides of the divide want to know Jesus' opinion on the political question of the day. Do we pay this tax that declares Caesar, the son of God, the great high priest? So Jesus takes a denarius and he asks them, whose image is on this? They say Caesar. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So when it comes to Roman authority, he has a casual, confident, one might even say cavalier attitude, saying essentially, let Caesar have his silly little tax. It's got his face on it. Give it back to him. What this means is that Jesus has no problem operating within the political systems of this world, not because he is subject to them, but because he sees himself above them and isn't threatened by them in the least. But he doesn't stop there. He then goes on the offensive and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That little statement, render to God what is God, embodies the essence of Jesus's political ambition and strategy in this world. Render to God what is God. We discover our way forward when we answer the question, what belongs to God? And biblically, there are two answers. The first answer to what belongs to God is, of course, everything. God is the creator of all things. He is the rightful owner of all things. Such is the premise of this podcast, Abraham Kuyper. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Now, it doesn't look like Jesus owns all things, but that is precisely the point. All things have rebelled against the rightful owner. And so when Jesus says, give to God what is God's, it is a very radical and revolutionary statement. He is calling on Rome and every kingdom to return to God and the ways of God. Give Caesar his little coin. Give Rome to God. What this means is that followers of Jesus are not allowed to be indifferent or apathetic to injustices in this world. So for the purpose of this podcast, we aren't allowed to ignore racism wherever it exists in God's created order. And I hope I convinced you in episode two that it does exist as a unique part of America's history. But how? That comes with the second answer to the question, what belongs to God? Jesus takes a coin and says, whose image is on this? They say Caesar. Well, he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It has his image on it, give it to him. And then he says, but give to God the things that are God's. And so we are supposed to ask, what has God's image on it? And the answer is you and me. We, the redeemed image bearers of God, are Jesus's answer to an unjust world. Not the politicized binary strategy of earthly kingdoms, but citizens of his kingdom rendering their lives unto the purposes of his kingdom. This is how Jesus intends to make this world right. Simply put, His strategy is the kingdom of God and the citizens therein. Now, if we are faithful to the strategy, we, like Jesus, will become politically homeless in this world and subsequently maligned by both sides. 
because our cause threatens both, as Jesus threatened both. But may I just say, before moving on, that though homeless, we become free. Free to critique and affirm Democrats and Republicans alike. Free to acknowledge the significance of systemic evil and individual responsibility. Free to participate in protest and denounce looting. Free to support noble police officers while calling for reforms that protect against harmful police officers. Free to announce Black Lives Matter while critiquing some of Black Lives Matter's agenda. Free to lament the oppression of the black community via racism and the disproportionate killing of the black community via abortion. Free to honor the greatness of our nation's ideals rooted in Christian assumptions while confessing the colossal ways we have failed to live up to those ideals. We're free. Exiles of the world, maligned by both sides, but free nonetheless. But freedom aside, we choose the strategy of Jesus because we take him at his word that his strategy brings the change we long to see. Change that our cultural political tribes continue to promise but never deliver. How so? When you examine Jesus' teachings on the kingdom, and it is extensive because the kingdom dominates his teaching, what we find is an extraordinarily unconventional kingdom, one that transcends borders and ethnicities, cultures and economies, trends and developments, languages and dominions. In short, it is not relegated to a particular kingdom, but relentlessly infiltrates and influences every kingdom it encounters. And this is its glory. Its aim is not to be the biggest, most powerful kingdom, but the redemption of all kingdoms. He says it is like a grain of mustard seed when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nests in its shade. What a beautiful parable of Christ's mission in this world. A small, exiled minority of his citizenship planted within a culture which grows into something that becomes a transcendent blessing to that culture such that all will find relief under its shade. And notice he says, every kind of bird will make its nest in this tree. Translation, every tongue, tribe, and nation will find shelter in the kingdom of God. Now, has the church always provided the healing that the kingdom promises? Absolutely not. I just detailed the church's history of complicity in America's racism. But the point is that the church perpetuated racism by uncritically aligning itself with worldly paradigms, whether that be uh, European colonialism or Southern Confederacy, rather than the paradigm of Christ's kingdom, as outlined in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. In contrast, every time God's people have recommitted themselves to God's kingdom ways, it has brought healing to our world. Historically speaking, the Christian faith, despite its litany of failures, has proven itself to be the greatest collective force of common good the world has ever seen. If you want a historical analysis of that, I commend to you Tom Holland's work, who is an atheist historian, who at the same time uh, details the common good that Christianity as a whole has brought to our world. 
So in searching for a theological framework for this moment, my point is that we don't need to invent a new one. Instead, Christians need to recommit ourselves to the ways of God's kingdom, a kingdom that will draw the ire of critical theorists and white supremacists alike, but it will be worth it because the justice that only the kingdom provides is worth it. So let's move from theology to practice. Practically, what does this look like for us? Now, again, I remind our listeners that this is primarily directed toward TCPC. And now that we have finally gotten to application of this series, I'm going to really zero in on the people entrusted to my pastoral care. So many of you heard my sermon and subsequent teachings on race, and you have reached out seeking guidance. Very teachable, very hungry. There is a palpable desire in our congregation to do something. We will be unveiling a more robust plan of application for our church in August when I return from my leave here in July. But let me give you a preview first. And if those uh, not part of TCPC want to borrow from these applications, feel free to do so. The kingdom of God has both individual and systemic applications. Let me speak to both of those for application. Individually. You, as a follower of Jesus, are called to embody the ways of Jesus wherever Jesus has you. First and foremost, this is a renouncing of the racist tendencies that remain in your own life. The world needs your fierce repentance of any remaining prejudice, down to the very thoughts and intentions of your heart. Kill your sin of racism. It begins there but it doesn't end there. Kill what is evil and fight for what is good. Your gifts, your resources, your time, your creativity, and yes, your privilege, leveraged for the cause of racial justice. Everyone listening to this has something to add, and you need to identify that, and you need to do it. Do it and costly ways that go beyond uncostly social media posts. And yes, your individual contribution matters. Everyone needs to watch A Hidden Life. It is a powerful and beautiful story of one man's uh, resistance to Hitler's Third Reich. On the surface, It seems his resistance was meaningless and ineffective, but the point of the film is that what seems insignificant is profoundly significant. Thus, the closing words of the film, quote, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. That things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Beautiful quote that the kingdom of God affirms. A life spent in fidelity to the Beatitudes is a significant life, whether we recognize it or not. Yes, we need an MLK. But we likewise need countless hidden lives striving to make MLK's dream a reality. So let us be numbered among those who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Now with that said, I fully recognize the need to offer discipleship to live this out. What does that hidden life of justice look like? 
And we are committed to doing that in in the most practical way possible. I know you want practical, concrete applications. And in August, after I return from my July leave, we are going to be presenting that. But let me give you a little preview of what our challenge is going to be. I asked Will Witherington to do what he does best. Uh, Will's an assistant pastor at church, pastor of ministries. I asked him to do what he does best and take all of this teaching that I've been doing and distill it down into simple and doable applications for our congregation. And he's come up with a plan for all of us. We have one simple application for your head, heart, and hands this year. For your head, we are asking everyone who calls TCPC home to read one book to get more informed on this issue. And in August, we will have a list of recommended books to choose from. For your heart, We are asking everyone who calls TCPC home to pursue one experience this year that will stir you in this issue. It may be visiting a museum like the Underground Railroad Museum in uh, Northern Kentucky. It may be attending the MLK March in Lexington. Again, we will have suggestions for you in August, but we want every member to have an experience that will move them, emotionally speaking. And for your hands... We are asking everyone who calls TCPC home to build one new friendship with someone from Lexington's black community. The best way to do this is to volunteer with organizations serving the black community, and we will provide those again in August. And then from that service, build friendships. One new friend that you are committed to walking with, listening to, learning from, and most of all, sacrificially loving. And I truly believe If that all the folks who call TCPC home did those three things this year, it would dramatically transform our church and the bluegrass. But the kingdom of God does not just have individual applications. It does involve systemic ones as well. This is where evangelicalism has proven inept. Here I am influenced by UVA, Virginia Christian sociologist James Hunter, whose thesis you can find in How to Change the World. Hunter argues that the reason, one of the reasons American Christianity has proven ineffective in cultural change is because we only think individually and not institutionally. And then compounding the problem is that American Christians have placed an overemphasis on the institution of politics for cultural change. That is to say, the only institutional power we do consider is the coercive power of the state. And this politicization has crippled the imaginations of evangelicals to creatively pursue the common good via networks of institutional power. But the kingdom of God absolutely calls for systemic solutions to systemic evils. Jesus viewed his church not as a collection of individuals, but as a force of systemic justice to overturn systemic injustice. We are called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession created to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a covenantal people called out of the darkness to expose this world of darkness to God's marvelous light. This is the fulfillment of God's original promise to Abraham to create a people who will bless the nations. So what I'm trying to suggest is the church needs to start thinking systemically, not just individually, about the kingdom of God. And that's what our church intends to do. 
create a localized system of justice to overturn localized systems of injustice. Many of you know that we have created the Bluegrass Network. The purpose of the network is twofold, plant churches and develop leaders. We do not think TCPC as a larger church in the suburbs of our city is institutionally sufficient to address injustice in the bluegrass. Instead, we think TCPC as a large and well-resourced church needs to leverage those resources for a network system greater than us. Instead of one big church getting bigger and bigger, we want to be a big church multiplying and mobilizing smaller churches contextualized to meet the diversity of culture and injustice in our community. And then we need to develop and train leaders within this network. Far more important than TCPC pews filled with black brothers and sisters, which is something I long to see. But more so, we need black leadership at the table, influencing the network we are creating. And so within the Bluegrass Network, we are designating a diversity fund that will be used to raise up diverse leaders. And we have already received a significant lead gift toward that fund. So a network of church planting that will work together for justice and a network of leadership that will work together for justice, all while collaborating with other institutions for justice. The issue of collaboration is a big one, and I, I, I thought about taking it on in this podcast, but then I decided it deserves its own discussion. But essentially, evangelicals are notoriously poor at collaboration because we are so committed to convictional fidelity, and to collaborate with those who have different convictions feels like a compromise. But collaboration is a thoroughly biblical concept, and I'll revisit that. Um, when we lay out all of this out in more detail in the, in the fall. But for now, I have one more application for our community. I've given you an application for your head, heart, and hands, and now I got one for your money. <laughs> we are asking everyone to give one donation this year above and beyond your regular tithing to fund the system we are creating. So one book, one experience, one relationship, and one donation. You ask me what to do, There is your answer, and we will follow back up with more details here in a month or so. Okay, let me close out this entire series with a much-needed gospel word of motivation. Again and again throughout Scripture, God motivates His people to correct injustice by reminding them that they once were the victims of injustice. He says repeatedly, you shall not oppress because you were once an oppressed people. You shall welcome the sojourner because you were once sojourners. He constantly brings them back to what God has done to rescue them from their oppressors and then calls them to do likewise for the oppressed. And of course, this is but a shadow of God's ultimate deliverance in Jesus. Beloved, strip away all the historical privilege we've enjoyed. Strip away the history of white European supremacy. Strip away your success, strip away your power, strip away your money, and behind it all, you will find a poor, powerless sinner in need of deliverance. You will find a slave, slave to sin, slave to darkness, 
oppressed by your sinful nature, oppressed by the tyranny of evil in the heavenly realms, oppressed by death, which will soon take you as its captive. This is your truest story, much truer than your American story. But into our story of oppression comes a messianic voice of good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and freedom for the oppressed. And so devoted is the Messiah to his enslaved people that it compelled him to lay down his life to free us from the tyranny of sin, Satan, and death. How? How can we, the beneficiaries of this gospel deliverance, now ignore the cry of the oppressed? This is what we do, Christian, because this is what has been done for us. Thank you so much for listening to this series. I'm taking a break from the podcast for the rest of July to take a much-needed sabbatical. In the meantime, would you be so kind to uh, leave us a five-star rating on Apple iTunes and even more helpful, would you leave a positive review for us? Uh, that's the best way you can support the podcast. Um, many people have asked, how can I support this? And that that's it. Just um, take the time to rate and review us. And uh, I will see everyone back in August, Lord willing for our next episode of Every Square Inch.